You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Lord, you are the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so look upon us now with eyes of compassion, for we come to you as sick and poor and needy sinners. In your love and mercy, you forgive all our sins, canceling the record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross of Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Lord, keep us from the entices of the world and conquer our hearts until you become our sole desire. May we never be too busy that we neglect to think deeply of Christ. May we never be too distracted with the concerns of this life that we forsake the perspective of eternity. Now, as we're about to feast on your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things and make this sermon most useful for the sanctification of your church, that we would pursue you together in purity and unity. We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. So please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 3 to 10. Ephesians 4, 3 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. As I mentioned last time, chapter 4 marks the halfway point of the letter of Ephesians. And it is the beginning of Paul's formal application of doctrine. Here we notice a clear shift of focus from the doctrine of God and doctrine of salvation by grace to moral imperatives and instructions for Christian living. After laboring and spending a lot of ink to clarify what the gospel is, and what God has done for believers in the first half of his letter, Paul now goes on to tell believers what they must do and how they must live. 
In the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul urges all Christians everywhere to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. To live like children of the King. To live consistently with His name that we bear. For true recipients of grace, our character, our conduct, our habits, our desires, our thinking, our whole lives must be directed and shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as we will see today from verses 3 to 10, the apostle shall give us insight into and instruction for the unity of God's people. And Paul is particularly concerned for the unity of the church because our unity is a reflection of the nature and work of God. The Christian God is a God of unity. There is perfect unity within himself. The perfect harmony between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Christian church is the delivered and redeemed people of God, reconciled and united through the finished work of Christ. Therefore, in a world of, of division, in a world of hatred, the church, set apart by their unity, is a powerful testimony of who our triune God is and his awesome love for us. No wonder then Jesus prays for this. He prays for this. He prays for the unity of all believers in his final moments before he goes to the cross. He prays to the Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world would know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. People of God, our spiritual and visible unity with one another is the dynamic expression of God's love and power in our lives. And it is a compelling evangelistic appeal to the world. And so what exactly does the Apostle Paul teach us about the unity of the church? Well, from our passage today, we draw these three main points. First, unity of the church is not achieved by us, but maintained by us. Second, unity of the church is not concession of truth, but confession of truth. Third, Unity of the church is not uniformity of Christians, but diversity of Christians. So let's jump right into the first point. Unity of the church is not achieved by us, but maintained by us. If you look with me to verse 3, Paul exhorts us, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is not an exhortation for believers to create or achieve unity. But rather, he says, 
keep the unity. And you cannot keep what you do not already have. Paul assumes that Christians already have unity. And his instruction to us now is to preserve and maintain it. But how do we come to possess this unity of which we did not achieve? Well, Jesus Christ died to secure it. He achieved it for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has told us that Jesus Christ himself is our peace who has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Through his sacrifice on the cross, he effectively reconciled sinners unto God and with one another, thus creating in himself one new humanity. You see, this is not something we could ever achieve. It is only something we receive by grace. When I speak of the unity of God's redeemed people, I'm not talking about mere human cooperation or collective agreement. Rather, it is the mystical, spiritual, and unbreakable bond which we have with Christ and with one another. And this is beyond what our human efforts could ever achieve or attain. Our unity is the gracious gift of God achieved by Christ and bestowed to us through the Holy Spirit. For we were all once enemies of God, deserving of his wrath and judgment for our sins. Yet, to all who did receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Think about your own family of origin. Your biological parents, your siblings, if you have some. Whether you like it or not, you cannot deny that you are uniquely and forever connected to your family members by blood. Likewise, when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and become a Christian, you are adopted into God's family and therefore you become uniquely and forever connected to Christ and with the members of his body, the church. However, just because we already possess this spiritual bond, it doesn't mean we can remain passive and idle in working out our unity. Though our unity is spiritual, there must be a visible manifestation of our unity in the life of the local church. Hence, the apostle reminds us that it is the responsibility of all spirit-filled Christians to make every effort to keep and maintain the unity. This requires our active and diligent participation. We must renounce our pride, our self-centeredness, and all that threatens the unity of the church. 
And as Paul instructed us in verse 2, we must be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It is inevitable for conflicts to arise in the church, for even great friendships and lovers sometimes clash. Essentially, we are all sinners living together in the same household, and that is a recipe for disaster. However, conflicts don't always have to end in hurt and division. When a conflict arises among brothers and sisters in Christ, we can take it as an opportunity to glorify God by displaying the fruit of the Spirit in the way that we handle it and resolve it. Our Heavenly Father delights in our efforts to keep the unity by showing humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. You see, the unity of the church is both a gift and a mandate. Christ died to secure it, and he gave it to us to work it out, maintain it, protect it, like a priceless treasure given to us and entrusted to our care, we must do everything and anything to protect it from all evil and sinister forces that seek to steal it and destroy it. Let's move on to the second point then. Unity of the church is not concession of truth, but confession of truth. Some biblical scholars believe that verses 4 to 6 is an early Christian creed that Paul cites. He writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here, Paul outlines seven foundational truths on which the church stands united as one. There is one body, all believers from all time and from all nations belong to the same body, the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. Together we function as one living organism, the body of Christ on earth. We are his eyes that see the lost. We are his ears that hear the suffering cries. We are his hands and feet that serve the poor and needy. There is one spirit. The same Holy Spirit indwells and permanently resides in all believers. The Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is alive and active in every single believer, empowering them to obey, conforming them to reflect the character of Christ. There is one hope. All who have been justified by the blood of Christ share this same hope of glory. If you place your faith in him, you shall not perish, but have eternal life. Your end destination is the new heaven and new earth, 
where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, but only pure enjoyment of God. There is one Lord. For the Christian, our ultimate allegiance does not belong to Caesar or to any earthly king or leader. Our ultimate allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ alone. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. We move, we live, we die for Him. Our hearts beat for Him in Him alone. There is one faith. God has given us the Holy Scriptures and we submit to everything it teaches and implies. Scripture alone is the only infallible rule of Christian faith and practice. When Scripture speaks, God speaks, and we hold tightly to His Word and all that it reveals concerning Himself, humanity, and salvation. There is one baptism under the new covenant that Christ established, all of God's people are to be baptized by water into the triune name, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It is the initiation and mark of entrance into God's covenant family. Baptized persons are called to take hold of all that their baptism represents and all that the gospel promises to them by faith. There is one God and Father of all. He is the one and true God who fills the universe with his sustaining and life-giving presence. He is over all, through all, in all, and in a very special way, God is a loving Father to all believers who are adopted into his family. These seven foundational truths must be boldly confessed and declared from our mouths. You see, the unity of the church is grounded in truth. And when we confess and declare who our God is and what we believe, we stand united as one. And that is why we come around the old and tested creeds and confessions that help to clarify and state what Christians believe. The desire to clearly and publicly proclaim what we believe is a basic Christian instinct. We confess the truth. On the other hand, cults have a tendency to concede, to concede and give up the truth. They have a tendency to hide the truth. They are ambiguous. They share half-truths to lure people in. They set up their booths on every major street in our city. They are standing there, dressed nicely, waiting, waiting for someone to come and take the bait. They will come knocking on your doors. They will tell you that they are Christians and that they have a message from God. Beware of these cults 
and their concession of truth. And beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They have a tendency to change the truth. They read and teach from the same Bible. They have big platforms and big churches. They produce great music, write best-selling books, but they preach a distorted gospel of prosperity, wealth, and health, devoid of repentance and the sufficiency of Christ. Beware of Christian organizations and churches that use worldly means to attract the crowd. They have a tendency to compromise the truth. Using worldly means attract worldly people who come to church for entertainment and not for Christ. They compromise by not talking about difficult doctrines and the unpopular but necessary topics of sin, of judgment, of hell, and they water down, they dumb down the gospel of our Lord. And the unfortunate reality today is that there is a wide-scale concession of the truth in the modern Christian world. On the altar of tolerance and inclusivity, many Christians have sacrificed biblical faithfulness. They are confused. They are indoctrinated by the world's agenda. They think being a, a loving person, a loving Christian, means to accept different opinions and to agree with everyone else. Do not be confused. Tolerance does not mean accepting everyone else's beliefs. Tolerance does not mean surrendering your convictions. Tolerance does not mean indifference and neutrality. Rather, tolerance is our commitment to be kind and patient with those who have a different belief while we remain persistent in our commitment to the truth. Christian tolerance is treating other people with respect and dignity while we hold fast to God's unchanging word. In 1925, four major Protestant denominations came together to form what is now called the United Church of Canada, now the largest denomination in Canada. Even up to just 20 years ago, the United Church of Canada made up almost 10% of our country's population. How did they become such an influential force? Well, as their name implies, they believed that if the different denominations united and came together as one, they could pool all the different resources together for the sake of furthering their mission. And they were right. They became very wealthy and very resourceful. However, 
it came at a cost. It came at, at the cost of biblical faithfulness. They ignored their differences. They avoided theological discussions that were controversial. And they stopped caring about the truth. And today, the United Church of Canada has degenerated so much, so much so that nobody should even consider them a Christian denomination. They believe that the Bible is outdated and contains many errors. They celebrate same-sex marriage. They support abortion and the gender transition of little children. They believe that Christianity is just one of many religions and paths to God. And most shocking of all, they have pastors who publicly declare that they are atheists who do not believe the existence of God. Where are the godly men and women who will contend for the truth, who will boldly confess the word of God? Will you stand up for the truth? And if you do, you might lose some friends. You might lose your reputation. But it is much better to lose those things than to lose your soul. It is much better to be labeled narrow-minded and canceled for the sake of biblical faithfulness. Dear beloved, it is not arrogant. It is not divisive to contend for the truth. It takes great humility and courage to speak the truth in love. This is our God-given duty. The unity of the church will not be preserved by ignoring our differences and avoiding difficult topics of doctrine. Rather, the unity of the church will be maintained by contending for and confessing the truth. And now we come to the third and final point. Unity of the church is not uniformity of Christians, but diversity of Christians. Look with me to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Here, when Paul uses the word grace, he does not mean the grace of salvation, but he means the grace of ministry gifts. Christ has apportioned the grace of ministry gifts to all believers so that they can use them to serve and build up the body of Christ. And this does not look like uniformity. Can you imagine if everyone in the church was just gifted musically and everyone just wanted to serve in the praise team? That would be a very unhealthy and dysfunctional church who would serve in the hospitality team and the ushering team and the AV team and the finance team and the fellowship team. Thankfully, God has blessed his church with a diversity of roles and responsibilities, a diversity of Christians 
with different gifts and abilities better serves the unity of the church. Unity and diversity is God's intention and design for his church. And then in verse 8, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. He quotes the Old Testament here to illustrate Christ's grand generosity in giving us these gifts. He writes, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. It is important to be aware of the context. Psalm 68 is a song of triumphal procession. It pictures God as a strong and mighty warrior king. A king who goes out to battle his enemies. And when this king ascends in victory and defeats and takes captives his enemies, he plunders them and brings back the spoils of war. He brings back the spoils of war to share with his people. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that Christ, our King, is victorious over sin, over death, and over all powers of the devil. He has delivered his people, established his church, and blessed them richly with many gifts. Christians now enjoy this sweet victory and every spiritual blessing in heaven, which is ours in Christ. Therefore, we serve one another. We use our gifts. We give to the underprivileged out of super abundance. And then Paul continues to explain in verses 9 to 10, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower and earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Who is this referring to? This is a prophecy and it is referring to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has descended to the lowest of depths to rescue us. He, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our humble, victorious, and exalted King. His death, resurrection, and ascension has secured our unity and salvation forever. 
And as we freely receive the outpouring of all the gifts and blessings, we must freely give ourselves to the work and mission of the church. Beloved church, you have heard it said today that unity is an essential feature which we must preserve and display. It is both a gift and a mandate from our Lord. And so let us make every effort to keep and maintain our unity. Let us contend for the truth and confess it boldly. And let us be faithful stewards of all our gifts by using them to serve one another and to promote the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious gift, the gift of unity, secured and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to preserve and maintain this unity and display it to the world so that all would see that Christ Jesus, you are loving, you are powerful to save and reconcile sinners unto God and reconcile sinners to other sinners. We thank you for what you have done for us. Would you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.